leaving the safe confines of the corporate world was scary. And scary things are usually good things. Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn, and I am honored to be your host. Our mission here on the Impact Entrepreneur Show is not just to inspire you, but also to help you tap into and begin to believe in your God-given potential and purpose. That's right, baby. We want you to not only be inspired, but experience breakthrough. And we do that on this podcast by interviewing incredible people who are using their experiences, their skill set, their platforms to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. And here's the thing. None of these folks are simply sitting back, living a life of leisure. They have things to do, places to go, and lives to impact. Super excited about this episode with Patrick Lencioni. But before we get into his intro, just want to give a big shout out to my buddy Ryan Hawk over at the Learning Leader Show for introducing me to Amy over at Patrick's team and helping me line this up. And Amy, you are a rock star, as is the rest of Patrick's team. Patrick Lencioni is the founder of The Table Group and the best-selling author of 11 books. He is the architect of organizational health, a concept that he calls the the last competitive advantage in business today. Now, Patrick's passion for leadership and organizational health can be traced all the way back to his first exposure to business as a child, when his dad lamented about working for a company with, quote, bad management. Pat didn't really know what management was was at the time, but he knew that it was a bummer for his dad, and he eventually learned after starting his first job that bad management was a dysfunction. Now, Pat's dad always wanted him to get a great job, and guess what? Pat did. He got the best job out of anyone in his graduating class, and guess what? He was bored. He said he was so unattracted to data and analysis and was instead fascinated by human beings that he saw and interacted with. He said he was watching really intelligent people make fundamental mistakes because of human behavior, ego, and things like that. And he realized that he could help. In Pat's most recent book, The Ideal Team Player, How to Recognize and Cultivate the Three Essential Values, he aims to help individuals make a difference in their own teams. But we go way beyond the books. We actually talk about Pat's faith, our shared faith, the importance that has played in his own journey as a businessman, as a father, as a husband, as a member of the community. So bust out your pens and paper. Don't be a podcast junkie. Take some notes and brace for impact. This is a special one. I want to hear what you think over on iTunes. Go ahead and leave a review when you're done listening to this show. Patrick Lincioni, welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. Super excited to have you. Very, very much looking forward to this for a long time, actually. I think we, Amy and I have been trying to line something up for like a, a year. <laughs> well, it's great to finally be here. I'm yes. very excited to talk to you, Mike, and about all the things you're doing. Yes, thank you. So I always start with my guest's origin story and, and who, what makes them who they are. But I'm going to like throw a little bit of a twist in there rather than simply asking you what it was like to grow up in the Lencioni family. <laughs> because the first book I read wasn't you know Five Dysfunctions or any of your other books. It was actually three big questions for the frantic family. So we're going to use some questions from that book 
to help us, you know, guide us along on your origin story. So when you think about growing up in the Lencioni family, what made your family unique? Wow, that's a, so this is a really interesting thing to think about, and I haven't been able to prepare. I think what was interesting about my family growing up is that my parents were not people of means or of education, of, of higher education. And so we were really, they were very hardworking and very humble Catholic people. And, um, but there was this expectation that we were going to improve ourselves. So they sent all of their kids to very um, good schools, really, really good schools. I don't know why now when I look back that they thought about that and they just totally scrimped to get us through it. And um, so a big part of what made us unique was that they had the ambition or the, the hope for a better life for us. And, but we came from a background that didn't really support that. Hmm. And for whatever reason, they wanted us to kind of move on to the next place in life. When did you, you use a really important word there, ambition, which, which I love. When did ambition kind of start actually making sense to you in your brain in terms of what you wanted to achieve? You know, it's, that's very interesting because I, um, as a kid, I mean, to, to fast forward to what I'm doing now, I can go back to fast forward and then go back to when I was eight or nine years old. And my dad, who was very hardworking and very loyal to the company he worked with for 40 years and was very good at what he did, but he would come home from work and I'd sometimes go with him and he was a salesman and he, um, but he would complain about management and I, and I could tell something was, wasn't right there at the company, but I didn't really know what management was. But at a very early age, I remember thinking, well, that's a bummer for my dad. And for whatever reason, I had this interest in my brain. I wonder how this whole work thing works. Hmm. And it, it was years later, I graduated from college and I went to my first job and I realized there was, it was dysfunctional. Hmm. And I remember thinking, this, I'm supposed to fix this. This is my, I, I'm passionate about helping organizations not be dysfunctional so that people like my dad don't suffer through it because mm. we spend too many hours a day at work mm. for it to be dysfunctional. So I mm. think that interestingly enough, that came from my childhood mm. and from in a world where dad worked, mom stayed home with the kids, dad was frustrated by his company and something said to me, I think I want to do something about that. Oh man, I, I, I just got the, the goosebumps because that is so awesome because Every great thing starts from a, a pain point, right? Yes. And, and that pain point is very deeply emotional for you because it was your, you witnessed what your dad had to deal with. Yes. And you know, oh my gosh, I'm just having like all these things right now because you know, like in your, I can only imagine when you're doing this work, you can see all the little eight or nine year old boys looking at their mother or father and saying, why do they have to deal with this? Yeah. And, and, the, and the parents going home and feeling frustrated and demeaned and dreading going to work the next day. That's just so, so tragic. You know, it's interesting. Then something else happened in my life when I was young. And that is that I remember watching The Waltons, which was a, a TV show that a lot of families watched. Um, you're a little young for that, Mike. But the, the, the Waltons was a story told from the standpoint of the oldest boy, John Boy. And he was a writer and he would write in his journal every night. And I remember saying, man, I like that writing thing. I like, I want to be a writer. Well, my family, I didn't come from a family that would choose to be a writer or a director or an author or a dancer. You know what I mean? You, you needed to get a job. My dad was really excited for us to get good jobs. Yeah. And so, so I postponed that and I took a few classes in college, but I went and I studied economics and I got a, a, a job in the business world. And one day I came, I, just, I came up with a theory on leadership and management and somebody said, you should write a book. And, and I was like, if I'm going to write a book, 
I want it to be really interesting. And so I wrote it in fiction form. Yes. And so I combined, and my, my dad was happy for me later. He's, you know, because I, I finally got to do that thing I love, but I got to apply it to a pain point that I could. And, and now I'm a fiction oh writer yeah. who writes about these things. I mean, what a blessing that's been. Yeah. So you were able to connect those two things. Absolutely. And I had no idea. I, I could not have predicted how that went. Yeah. But, you know, God put it all together. And I'm <laughs> that's very so lucky. Amazing. What, when, when you think back to your, your childhood, what was your family's most memorable rallying cry? Oh gosh. I think, I think the ongoing one was to help their kids have more opportunities than they had. Hmm. I think it was, you will out, um, achieve your parents hmm. and, and the expectations that your parents had. Hmm. We are going to give you opportunity to do things. And they didn't even understand what they were. And when we finally moved away, because I grew up in central California in a town called Bakersfield, it doesn't have a heck of a lot going on in terms of yeah. jobs. The armpit of California. Yeah, that's what they say. <laughs> and, uh, um, and there's some truth to that. It's not near as bad. I always say it's not near as bad as people who have never really lived there think it is. And it's twice as bad as the people who have spent their whole lives there think it is. You know, I love it and I criticize it. But, but the thing is, but I, we had to leave. And I think that my mom to this day, I think the other day she was like, yeah, if we had known that, we probably would have never sent you guys. To they wanted more for us. They didn't probably realize it meant we could never live there. You know, uh, are they still there? My mom is. My dad has passed on, but my mom is. Although she's talking about it, it might be time for her to move near me. Oh, that's cool. And you're up, you're up nor in Northern California now, right? Like yeah, I'm outside of Walnut Creek. Okay, cool. Just up in the, in the Bay Area, but east of, of the Bay Area. And awesome. Kind of, awesome. Yeah. Now you mentioned you, you mentioned your faith already a couple of times, and I know that it's something that is at the center of much of what you do. And this actually, this question actually comes from a friend of mine who is a huge Patrick Lencioni fan, and he specifically wanted to know at what age did your faith play a deeper role in your career decisions and changes to your vocation, and how and when did that really come about? Wow. Well, I'd like to say it always did. And, I, and I've, always, <laughs> I've always gone to church and I've always prayed. So I, I know that God has been active in my life, whether I was meriting that or not. But it was probably about 10, no, probably about more than that. It was probably about 15 years ago that I finally decided, hey, the stuff I'm doing, I really want to use to serve the church. And so I prayed about that. I went and volunteered in my local diocese here. And um, I started getting involved in teaching management to priests. And then about nine years ago, maybe eight years, nine, eight or nine years ago, I, I started to pray for humility. I would go to mass and I, and I remember saying, God, strip me of my ego because I really want to live for you. And, and every time the parable of the sower came up at mass, mm -hmm. you know, in the gospel about you know, the, the seed that falls on the path and the seed that falls next to the path and then the seed that falls in the thorns and the seed that falls in good soil. I always made it to the thorns. I, was, I, I felt like I got to level three <laughs> where the cares of the world choked off my faith. And I, I remember thinking, There's, God doesn't grade on a curve. He wants me all in. So I said, God, get me out of the thorns and the cares of the world. And I, I remember distinctly feeling like he said to me, are you sure you want to do that? Because it's going to be very painful. And so I went through what I can describe best, I think, as my own dark night of the soul, hmm. where God stripped away all of my joy and all of the worldly things I thought I had. Mm -hmm. um, and I was completely emptied of those. And it was painful and dark and beautiful. So when I came out of that, I think that when God brought me out of that, I think he, he gave me a new lease. And since then, I've been doing a lot of work in the church and, and changing the way I kind of see who I am. 
Mm-hmm. So I, I, I would say that happened to me when I was about 42 or 43 years old. Mm-hmm. When I really came to terms with the fact that none of the earthly achievements I've made are worth anything. It's all about what God uses them for. So I think that a lot of people miss out on that trough, all of the opportunities in that struggle and in that, that growth. They don't actually, they're not, they're so focused on getting out of it that they don't even realize that they're not being present. So how did you go about like taking advantage of that struggle during that period of time? And what, what was the fruit of it? Well, I tell you, I did something that I'd never done before and something that, you know, I came from a family where my parents thought that going to a psychologist was something probably for rich people or for weird people. And so I was seeking help and I was praying and I was like, God, help me. I'm in this dark period. And I knew it was a faith journey, but it was, it was painful. I mean, it was really, really the most difficult thing I've ever gone through. And, um, and so I actually made the decision to go away and get help. And I couldn't, I didn't know where to turn. So I, I found this program that executives go through. I think most of the executives that go through probably have substance abuse problems or, or marital issues. And I did, by the grace of God, I didn't have those. I was just totally empty. And so mm-hmm. I went and I did this. And while I was there, some miraculous things happened and I prayed a lot. And it was really God who said, okay, I'm, I'm bringing you to your knees and I'm protecting your family from bringing to your knees. And now you're going to realize that only my will is important in your life. Mm. And, um, you know, I pray that I'll never have to go through anything like that again, unless God really, unless I need to. But um, so it was during that time, I think that that's kind of created the context for the rest of my life, I think. Yeah. I hope. Yeah. That a powerful, powerful story. And, you know, I, I really actually, I believe that these great, these great works, these great and powerful things, whether it's the, the nexus between your writing and your uh, management consulting and your dad's pain or what you're doing now, all of these things happen when we begin to own our story and, mm-hmm. and, what, and what's happened to us. I mean, you know, I were talking before uh, about the importance of, of owning your story and, and really identifying what you're really capable of and uh, taking ownership over that and taking ownership over all of the adversity that you've experienced. And in particular, in the way that we, we reflect on it, because we're an internal people, right? We think quietly most of the time by ourselves. And the way that we reflect on life, you know, controls the narrative. And the word reflect literally means to bend back time or direct light or heat onto something. Mm. And so when you realize that you're like, shoot, I get to control the energy that I'm putting on that thing, whatever it is. If I'm, if I'm fully present of what I'm doing, uh, of of what I'm reflecting on. And so I'd love to, to hear what you discovered that you were fully capable of when you began to take ownership of your story after that kind of dark night of the soul, as you put it. I think one of the things that happened was I, I began to realize that anything God wanted me to do, he would make possible if it was really his will. Mm. And so it was kind of like this whole, you know, we go through life wanting to, to achieve things. And that's a very American thing, very worldly thing. It's like work hard, achieve. And I think it's really important to work hard, do your best and strive, and have goals and all these other things. But I think that sometimes that leads us to, to like power through everything. And what I realized is, I suppose it's like golfing or something like that. It's like, no, actually just swing fluidly and with confidence and let God do the work. I mean, work hard, but don't worry about the outcome. Mm-hmm. And what I realized is that God's plan for me and what he wanted me to achieve was so much bigger than my own. 
mm-hmm. that if I didn't overwork it mm-hmm. and I didn't overattach myself to the outcome, that it would be bigger than I have anything I could imagine. Mm-hmm. And um, that's a hard thing to learn when you're taught growing up. And in my family, you know, like work hard. We don't have a lot of money. We weren't educated. Go out there, do, 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 do. Yeah. So I was addicted to achievement and approval. And I finally realized, wait a second, my identity isn't in my achievements, it's in God. Mm-hmm. And he's the only one I need his approval. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. then when you relax, mm-hmm. you actually perform better and he does things that you couldn't imagine. So I think I came out of that with less pressure. When you reflect back on, on all of that stuff, was there a moment where, where you were grinding, working against what you were supposed to do kind of element? And, and what was that like? Oh, it's fear-based. It's anxious. It's, it's, um, it's this always trying to prevent anything bad from happening. A big mm-hmm. part of it is, is avoiding any suffering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the divine mercies, every, we try to pray it every day here, I mean, some people in my office with me. And at the end of it, it says, and, and God, you know, give me mercy so that in difficult moments, I might not despair or grow despondent, but trust in your divine will, which mm-hmm. is love and mercy itself. See, I was thinking it was all my will. Mm-hmm. But when I go, no, God, whatever you will for me, I'll, I'll, I need to receive that as love and, and mercy. Mm-hmm. Then, I'm, then I have different. So I, I think there was a lot of anxiety, mm-hmm. a lot of pressure to perform, pressure to get the approval of others, mm-hmm. which now when I get that, I just try to pass it right along to God. <laughs> yeah, which is a hard thing to do. It's, yeah. it's a really hard thing to do. Oh, gosh. You know, your first career out of school was at Bain, at Bain, yes. Bain Capital, right? It was Bain Management Consulting. Bain Capital buys companies and runs those. Bain Capital came out of Bain, which was a very high-end management consulting firm. Yeah. So obviously you landed what your dad probably thought was like the dream job. Like you had hit like the cream of the crop. And so when you decided to leave that job and you called your dad, or even after, I think after that you went to Oracle but when you yeah. decided to go out on your own and you called your dad and said, Hey dad, I'm going to, I'm going to do this thing, this thing called being an entrepreneur. <laughs> what, what did that conversation sound like? Yeah. And my dad loved me so much. And on this feast of St. Joseph, the patron of the worker and of fathers, you know, it's appropriate, he, but he was worried. I mean, I remember saying, dad, I'm going to start my own business. And I had just gotten a job offer from Steve Jobs. At, at Pixar at the time, oh, and wow, I turned wow. that down. And another famous person gave me a job offer to, to go to his big company. And I had had all these jobs where I was a vice president and I, was, I had benefits. And my dad was so proud of me, God rest his soul. And I said, Dad, I'm going to go start my own company and I'm taking four people with me. Hmm. And he said, oh, Pat, oh, first of all, it was really hard for him to know that I was leaving the security, which is what he always wanted. Mm-hmm. And he said, don't, take anybody with you because you might not be able to afford them. Go start your business on your own and then see if you can afford it. And I said, well, dad, if I don't do it with these people, I'll never be able to make anything because they're good at things I'm not good at. Mm-hmm. So it was a tough time for him. Mm-hmm. And then he was very proud that it turned out well. But um, yeah, it was hard for him. And man, I hope I can trust God with my children. I pray for that every day that I trust God with my children because I worry for them. Yeah. And they're going to have to take risks and suffer and, yeah. in ways that I can't imagine. Mm-hmm. They're going to have to wear their own armor. Oh my you gosh. Know? And, and yeah. you know something? It's hard. Mike, I just, from the very beginning, I was like, no, no, no. I want to, pre- you know, I know that I'm not supposed to do this, but as a parent, every instinct is oh, prevent them from suffering. 
Yeah, I know. I mean, I, my parents have been the same way, and and you know, I have a I have a lot of listeners of all kinds of faiths that that listen to this show, and but I always talk about the fact that I believe that we were all created by a God who wants the very best for us because we're created by an awesome God, and and we can do. So we can we can't even possibly comprehend or imagine all of the way we are actually capable of, but yes. we need we need to step forward in in faith and and confidence in that. And one of the things that when you were talking about um, your dad was concerned about security, right? It made me think of the Ernest Shackleton story. Are you familiar with that? Was it the climber? He was no. He was the uh, explorer. Right. Who's yeah. Oh, he was also a climber, but he was an explorer charting Antarctica and his boat. Oh, okay. got, That's yeah. right. Shackleton. Right, yeah, right, right, right. His boat, his boat got stuck, you know, down in Antarctica and, and all 28 crew members in 1915 or whatever had to abandon ship and were stuck on ice, moving from ice flow to ice flow for over 500 days. <sighs> and, and they all survived. Nobody, no satellite phone, no digital anything, obviously. Nope. Nope. Everybody thought they were gone. And but there's there's this great book called Endurance, and it and the reason why it's so great is because the guy who wrote it not only does he he use historical documents to tell this to retell the story, but he also uses these crew members' journals. And there was one moment where they had been stuck on this ice flow for like four months or something like that for an extended period of time. And they had gotten comfortable on this ice flow. Wow. And all of a sudden, the ice flow opens up to a point where they could throw their, their boats and potentially make it out of the ice flow into open water. But there was a brief hesitation, very, very small, but a brief hesitation to leave that sense of security, right? Yeah. And it's, it's, it's amazing that how quickly we can conform to our environment. Mm-hmm. And how dangerous it is, and to be really aware uh, that security is really a myth. Yes. And nothing lasts forever. And if you try to preserve something longer than it's meant to be, it's not, it's not right. And it's such human nature. It's so tempting. You know, you and I share a lot of things in common. We have the same number of kids. We share uh-huh. the same faith. And we share the same fascination with human behavior and and the human side of business, which I actually think is going to become even more important in the next decade, century, whatever, with the you know emergence of artificial intelligence in the way that it is. But when when did it really become like a, a fascination that you knew you were going to run with? You know, so I was I went to Bain and I got out of school and I got the best job of any kid in my college. Because everybody said that's the job to get. I don't know how I got the job in the grace of God and, and some bad interviewing by people. <laughs> and so I got hired. And while I was there, I was just so, so unattracted to just data and analysis and the things that were going. And I was fascinated by the human beings I saw. And I was watching really intelligent people make fundamental mistakes because of human behavior and ego and, and things like that. And that's when I said, oh my gosh. That's what I want to do. Hmm. And, I, and, and I remember reading a book called, and I'm fascinated by, with, by the way, with career choices and development of people's purpose and things like that too. Hmm. And I read a book called What Color Is My Parachute? Hmm. And, I, and, and, uh, 
And I got to know the author later, years later. But in that book, it takes you through your whole life story. You have to know your story, essentially. Hmm. And, and then you go back and you, you, you write, I, I must have wrote 20 pages of every memory I had growing up. And then it said, what were the little micro moments when you were happiest? Oh my and I gosh. went through and it was always like whenever I was in a group of people and, 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 and facilitating for them or leading them or talking to parents in college about their kids. And, and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm supposed to be a facilitator of human beings learning and growing. That's how I figured out that I was really interested in a field that I'd never really understood called organizational okay. development. Wow. And it was in going through that process. So the book, and if you've never looked at it, um, my mom gave it to me when I was in high school and I was like, oh, well, wow. I'm not going to read this. And it wasn't until I got out of my first job in college that I read it and I figured out this is what I meant. No, I, I need to read that. I've never, I've never heard of the book before. And I also did the Myers-Briggs at the time okay. and realized, oh my gosh, I'm something called an ENFP, mm-hmm. but I had been raised to be something very different. Mm-hmm. I was creative mm-hmm. and unstructured and emotional. Mm-hmm. But the world of work as it was presented to me was structured, on time, unemotional, objective. Yeah. And that killed me. It yeah. crushed me. Mm-hmm. And until I realized that God had wired me differently than I thought I had to be, yeah. I could have never discovered yeah. my purpose. Everybody, everybody owes it to themselves and I think has an obligation to, to learn how they were manufactured. Yes, exactly. Because God made us all different. And if we don't align what we do in the world in the way that, like you said, he's good and he wants us to thrive and he wants us to use the gifts he gave us. And so many people, I mean, so many people, I don't want to be a lawyer, but I did this because I think you can make money. Mm -hmm. And I always tell young people and older ones alike, hey, listen, do what gives you passion. The money is not ever going to make you day-to-day satisfied. You know, and, and that requires a, a certain amount of vulnerability to 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 cross that chasm mm-hmm. a little bit. And there's this great quote that you that you wrote in in the five dysfunctions of a team, and it says that it's only when team members are truly comfortable being exposed to one another that they begin to act without concern for protecting themselves, and as a result, they can focus their energy and attention completely on the task or job at hand rather than being strategically disingenuous or political with one another, which is exactly what I think happens when people aren't living on purpose and don't understand how they're wired or don't put in the effort to learn who they are created to be. So how does one go about developing that kind of vulnerability? And before you answer that, when I read that quote, I actually had this image of the movie. I think it was Saving Private Ryan or or one of the um, Band of Brothers um, scenes where there's a soldier and they're out on a patrol and one of the guy gets shot by a sniper in the leg and he's down in the, in the open um, court. And then one of his, I think it was band of brothers. One of his, one of his brothers runs out regardless of his own life and security to go out and rescue and pull his brother into safely safety. And that's true vulnerability mm-hmm. and, and vulnerability is something that is a strength and not something to be shied away from. Right. And you mentioned it in terms of in the context of a team, which is you have to be vulnerable to one another. But in finding your purpose, you have to be vulnerable to all those things you thought the world expected of you, what your Mm -hmm. parents thought you would do or what you thought you would do or what the world thinks you should do. And, um, you know, there's prudence, but then there's also fear. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm just reading about St. Thomas Aquinas. And I think that on different, you know, we're not supposed to be 
haphazard about things, but we can't let fear drive us. Mm-hmm. And I think that until we overcome those fears of what other people will think or f- of maybe I'll fail in terms of, of how I always thought things would go, we're not going to fulfill our purpose. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I left that company, now I, I was very blessed because I was so hungry to work in that organization I wanted to work in. So we started my own firm. But leaving the safe confines of the corporate world mm-hmm. um, was, was scary. Mm-hmm. And scary things are usually good things. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group, a full-service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the Impact Entrepreneur told you to call. So when you think about coaching an individual who's right now they're you know struggling with that vulnerability in terms of aligning things with who they're created to be and what they're called to do what would you say to them in terms of making small commitments to achieve a big thing and I like that you said that small commitment because before I said if it's scary it's good not everything that's scary is good sometimes it's scary for a reason but mm-hmm. I would say do things in a small way you know and 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 both in terms of my business here and in terms of my career I didn't like say, okay, I'm doing this. I don't like it. I'm going to jump to the end product. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to go from one extreme to the other. Cause that's, that's what I would say, do something that's going to move you closer and closer to your passion. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's volunteer to do something. Sometimes it's do something on the side and then, I mean, you're, you're, you've talked about your story and doing that and Mm -hmm. then see where God takes you. Mm -hmm. You don't have to, you know, quit your job and surf for a living because you think that you might be called to surfing. Do something that allows you to experience that and see where it goes. Yeah. Yeah. I was just telling somebody today that although I've lived by the ocean my whole life and I have, you know, no problem going into the waves, I actually have a fear of doing an open water swim. Like that freaks me out. Yeah. You know, and she's an Olympic, former Olympic swimmer. And I was telling her she's, she lives in Southern California and she was going on an open water swim. I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I've got to do that because that's something that's so easy. I can swim safely, but the thought of swimming out in the open water scares me. Right. And then there, you, you pick the times you do it and the place you do it based on safety and all those yeah. other things. You don't do it in the middle of mavericks out there where the waves are <laughs> crashing down on you yes. or in the most, or you don't want to do it in the Farallon Islands where there's great white sharks everywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, so, but totally, you're prudent, but you don't let fear yeah. keep you from doing what you're meant to Absolutely. Be. You know, and actually this is a perfect segue because I want to talk about courage. And you know, we all see the Patrick that is, you know, the the successful businessman, the prolific author, the acclaimed speaker, you know, you're on entree leadership, you're hanging around with Matthew Kelly, Dave Ramsey, all these people on their on these great stages. But Behind all of that, there's a great deal of suffering and sacrifice that has to take place in order to achieve all of these things. And I love that you've used a couple of times, you've used the word passion because it's actually one of my favorite words mm. as, it, as it relates to the entrepreneurial journey because it literally means the willingness to suffer for something. And most people don't know that. But 
when you think about what you've accomplished, what what have you done that pushed you to your edge the hardest in life and required the most courage? And, and the word courage means heart. So the most heart. Wow. See, I, I, some of them, I didn't have a choice, hmm. you know? So I don't, I mean, my sons were, were premature. My, when my wife was pregnant with our first boys, they're twins. She went into the hospital at six months, I think. And, and so it was di- dicey. And so she had to live in the hospital for a month. We had just, I just started my business and the, my first book goes coming. So we were like doing things. So I, I don't think I had a choice, but I had to kind of just trust God, pray and work hard and, and get no sleep. And so that was definitely the hardest thing I've ever done, I would mm. say. But as far as doing something that I kind of chose to do, I suppose it would be starting the business. Because we had no prospects. I had no idea that I'd ever write a book or give me a speaker. We did it with, with the idea that if we could just make enough money to scrape by and work with people we liked, hmm. we would be okay. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so I guess that would be... Most of the difficult things, I'd have to say, I probably did because they confronted me and I had no choice. <laughs> um, to be fair, you know? Yeah, and um, you chose to stand and, and face the fear as opposed to run or freeze. Right. Yeah, I, I, and, and probably the, when I prayed to God to make me humble and I knew that I was going to suffer for that, that was probably the, <laughs> the biggest one. I remember thinking, oh, do I, I could back out now. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, no, yeah. I better do this. One time I, pr- I said that prayer and then literally within 12 hours, I was at a conference and this guy at the end of the conference got up in front of everybody and there was about 150 people and he got up on the microphone and he looked at me and he said, Mike Flynn. I don't like you. Wow. And so I got a big dose of humility, um, you know, within 12 hours. That was pretty, pretty remarkable. And we had a good chat afterwards um, because, I mean, obviously it totally caught me way, way off guard. But going back to starting the business uh, and you had no prospects, you had four employees. What was the first, what was your first pitch like? Well, and it, it was a pitch based on passion that we really wanted to help people do this. And we had no idea if it was going to take off. Mm-hmm. And so we, um, well, and it was interesting because our first pitch is we, when we started to do the company, we went to two companies, the one I had worked with before and another one that it, that it offered to hire me. And we said, okay, here's the deal. We want to start our own company and you can be our first clients. And one of them said, yes, mm-hmm. but we weren't sure how that would go. And, and the other one said, yes, the one I worked with. Well, so we started the business and, and with, with those as our clients. And shortly after starting, I mean, I think days later, the company where I used to work with called and said, we're not going to honor this contract. So, so like in our first week, one of my two clients said, you know that piece of paper we signed that you were going to do this for us? We're not going to do that now. And we were like, oh my gosh, this is <laughs> awful. And so and we like, are we going to get in a lawsuit? No, we're not going to do this. We're going to. And so we just had to kind of uh, get through that and make that like a, a motivator for finding other clients oh so that we could gosh. one day tell this story because it's nice that I can tell this story now. But at the time we thought, are, are we going to get off the ground here? Who was the first person that you called when that happened? You know, and it's interesting. We called an, a guy I had met in a previous job who was now a CEO. And who I thought would appreciate what we did. And he said, yes. He said, of course, I want to do this. 
And so, and you know, you're right. That was probably a blessing because it gave us a motivation. That's the amazing thing about it. What, what we see as setbacks and, and difficulties, God is just like, hey, dude, that's a gift. Mm-hmm. You have no idea what's wrapped inside of that thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that thing about, you know, in difficult moments, do not despair or grow despondent, but trust in God's will, which is love and mercy itself. Yeah. And, you know, when you think back to that, client that reneged on their contract, that's a big integrity issue. So you probably wouldn't have wanted them as a long-term client anyway. You're right. I wish I had the foresight at the time to see it that way. You know, I'm not going to tell people they're listening to this. And I was like, this is a blessing in disguise. (laughs) I was pretty pissed off, quite frank. But looking back, it was the best thing that could have happened. You know, you, we, we've talked earlier on about environment and, and it's even more important who you allow into your environment. And you have, you started with these great four people. And, and I want to talk, we're going to kind of transition to the ideal team player here. And, I, I, and we're going to look at it from an individual level, like an, a self-examination of sorts. But before we do that, you have a great friend in Matthew Kelly, and you talk about him a lot. And, and he's another incredible speaker and author. Yeah. And his, his work actually has had a really big impact on, on my life. His, mm. his, his book, actually, I listened to um, the CD version of it called seven, Le- seven levels of intimacy hmm. um, was a game changer for me. But how, how important has your relationship with Matthew or any of your other really close friends been in your own personal development? Well, this is one of those things I think is amazing. And for people listening to this, having friendships and fellowship with people and trusting deep relationships is important. And, and men in particular are so bad at this. And I am too. And I've been very blessed that God has put people in my life like Matthew Kelly, who's had an extraordinary impact. Um, and, and another guy named Chris Stefanik. I don't know if you know who Chris hmm. Stefanik is, but I'd love to introduce you and your listeners to him. S-T-E-F-A-N-I-C-K. Just an extraordinary guy. One of my best friends in the world now. And it's just an extraordinary guy. And um, they have been so important. And yet, I, when it comes to prioritizing spending time with them, when I'm a, a husband and a parent and I have a company, Guys usually push those relationships to the bottom of the mm-hmm. priority list. Mm-hmm. My wife is much better at nurturing relationships like that. And, um, and so it's something that it, we do at great cost to ourselves because we are not meant to live isolated lives. So the people like that have, are, are critical. And when I look back at my life, I remember some guy at a client told me who Matthew Kelly was and said I should read his book. I'd never heard of him before. I actually went out for some reason and read his book. and. Do you know what happened to me after I met Matthew Kelly? I spent the next two or three years of my life, a lot of it, doing nothing but introducing other people to him. Hmm. He became more important than my own stuff. Hmm. And it was such a wonderful thing to work to promote someone else's work that I mm-hmm. thought would help people mm-hmm. and to lose myself in that. So there's a, have you ever heard of Matt Marr? He's yeah. a, yeah, he's I know a singer. Oh, you know, Matt. So he's a good friend of mine too. But when I first met Matt, I was like, oh my gosh. And I put on a concert. We sponsored a concert for him and I did consulting for him. And I love it when God says, it's not about you right now. It's about all those other people. Help them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's only in doing things for others that we really discover our purpose too. Oh yeah, totally. And yet it's so easy to think it's all about me and my family, Mm -hmm. but there's actually other people out there to serve. Mm -hmm. And I don't think any of us have a purpose that is not tied in some way to helping other people discover theirs. Yeah, totally. It's, it's completely, it's, 
if the real people think that the purpose is for their purposes for them, but it's not, it's, it's for something else. It's to facilitate something. And it's, it's on them to really identify what that is through self-discovery, which a lot of people are afraid of. Yes. And we owe it to ourselves to push our friends and close family members outside of their comfort zone in love, Mm -hmm. but to encourage them to do things, even if they're frustrated us in the moment. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. To say yeah. to them, you know, I think you can do this. No, 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 I can't. It's like, you know, I think you got to pray for them. And you got to say, I, I love you too much to deny you, no. to deny telling you that I think you can do it. There's this great quote by uh, Joseph Campbell, and it says um, something to the effect of, the, the cave that you fear to enter is where the treasure lies. Ah, and isn't that true? Yeah, most of us fear to go in there and to do that deep work and to identify what it is that we're supposed to do because we're afraid of what we're going to encounter. But, but that which we encounter could actually be the very treasure that we're seeking. You know, I like to tell the story of the, from the I Love Lucy show where Ricky comes home from work and he finds Lucy crawling around the living room on her hands and knees. And he says, what are you doing? And she says, I'm looking for my earrings. And he says, you, you lost your earrings out here in the living room? And she says, no, I lost them in the bedroom, but the light out here is much better. <laughs> and, and sometimes we, we go to look for things where the light is good. Mm-hmm. knowing that what we're really looking for is someplace where it's a little darker and hurt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that. That's, that's powerful. That's powerful. And going back to Matthew, he, he's actually the reason why you wrote ideal team player. From what I understand. Yeah. Yeah. I was having lunch with him and he said, Hey, what are you writing? And I said, nothing. I got nothing left and right now. I don't know if I'm going to write anything. And he said, well, what about that book? Which was the subject of that book. And I said, Oh, do you think that's a book? And he goes, yeah, I think it's a book. So I said, okay, I'll give it a shot. And it's, been more it's been more popularly received than any book i've ever read written um it's growing faster than any book at this stage and um as it turns out the simplicity of it i think is one of the things that draws people to it and it was matthew who said yeah you should write that book yeah no i was just gonna say it's 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 so simple it's like what like how was this never brought (laughs) up before i mean like and it reminds me of that i think it's leonardo da vinci or something but the simplicity is the ultimate sophistication And yes, and it's, you know, you've got, you are either, I mean, when you're looking at the ideal team player, you're looking for somebody who's humble, hungry, and smart. Right. And I want to, I want to look at it, not necessarily from the team point of view, but I'd like you to maybe break it down a little bit from the individual who's trying to do some self-assessment about where they're at in their own life and their journey and, and trying to identify kind of where they are on the scale. Oh, yeah. I, I, and, and this is one of those things that doesn't matter what age you are, or what you're doing. There are three qualities that if you do those, people will be attracted to you, I think, and want to work with you. Mm-hmm. And this, you can apply this if you're a vendor, if you can apply it if you're a company with clients, you can apply it if, to yourself as a, and getting started in, a, in any job or whatever you're doing. And that is, I think that people want to, to work with people who are humble first. That's the most important of all the virtues, I think, because if, if, Pride is the root of all sin, and I believe it is, then humility is the antidote. And human beings are attracted to others who are not tied up in themselves. Mm-hmm. People who do not think they're the, they're, that the world is about them, who have a proper understanding of their place in the world. It's not that they lack self-confidence or they un- misunderstand their value in the world. They just know that it's not about them. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting. It was Matthew Kelly back again. I, I think it was in one of his books. He said something. And again, as a Christian, I, I feel comfortable saying this. And that is that Jesus, what people followed Jesus because he was the epitome of humility. Mm-hmm. And he was God. He is God's son. But, and that made him attractive. I never thought about it that way. 
Think about the people in life that you just want to be around. It's usually because they are so humble. They're so comfortable with who they are and it's not about them. Hmm. And so humility is one of those things that in any endeavor, whether you're a team player on a business, whether you're starting a business, whether you want to be a friend of somebody or a good parent or spouse, humility is key. Hmm. Now, um, but C.S. Lewis again said that being humble doesn't mean you think less of yourself than you should. It means you think about yourself less. Because hmm. we aren't supposed to think that we're worthless. We're supposed to think that it's not us who deserve any credit. It's God. Hmm. That's what we need to think. The second one is hunger. You know, if you want to be a great team player, have a great business, be hungry. Be the kind of person who works really hard. St. Paul made tents, but I, I'm thinking he probably made really good tents and he worked <laughs> hard at it. Now, it doesn't mean being a workaholic because that's defining yourself by your work. It just means if you're going to do something, do it really well. Never be a minimalist or a short-term, short-timer where you're just barely getting things done. Put yourself into it and do it well. And people are really attracted to people if they're humble and they're hungry. Mm -hmm. The third one is smart, but it's not intellectually smart. It's emotionally intelligent. It's have common sense around people. Understand that if when people are upset or when you whatever you're saying, how it's going to impact them, mm -hmm. be sensitive to their needs and to what they're thinking. And um, if you can, if you're emotionally intelligent, you're hardworking, and you're humble, your career will have no problems. I promise. Mm -hmm. It is impossible for a person who's emotionally intelligent, who's humble and hungry mm -hmm. to not be wildly successful. The world is and always will be looking for people like that. It's the best advice you can give your kids. It's something I want to instill in my children. And it's something I want to be. And identify which one you might struggle with and let the people in your life know. It's like, you know something? I really want to be humbler. Would you please, I beg you, whenever you see me do something that seems not humble, would you please love me enough to tell me? Yeah. The people, people that listen to your and my story might be afraid to ask for humility. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Although it's so, it's worth it. It's worth it. Yeah. Because, and it's worth it not only in your success, but it's worth it in terms of your peace of mind and your, your eternity. You know, you, you bring up a good point because we, you know, if I, I envision these things as buckets, right? And ideally we want to have all of these things filled to the brim, but we're human. We leak. And, yes. uh, and we exert ourselves and we, you know, we overwork and we underwork and all of these things. So when we are doing this kind of self-analysis and we're identifying where we are out of alignment, you know, or where we're out of balance in these, in terms of these buckets, what are some questions that we could ask ourselves to help us identify or, or, or fill up? Like, for example, the hungry bucket. Like if we're, if we're running low on hunger, what things should we be asking ourselves so that our boss or our key stakeholders don't have to ask for us? Yeah, I think you have to ask yourself if you're empathizing with the people you're working for, if you, if you value what, what happens for them. It's not about you. I think you have to ask yourself if you're making life harder for your coworkers hmm. um, or for your family, you hmm. know? And that's a good balance because it's like your kids need you around, but they also need to see an example that you're working hard and they need the benefits of your work. Mm. And mm -hmm. so it's easy to kind of take the day off to be with your kids, but you also need to demonstrate to them that there's a work ethic there. And I remember mm. I learned that from my dad, that he took mm. his work seriously mm -hmm. and that that was a huge benefit to me in my life. Mm -hmm. So you have to ask yourself those things. I, I think you have to ask yourself if you're really sacrificing. And that, that's why passion is so important because you're willing to suffer for it. Mm -hmm. And if you're doing something you have no passion for, 
Mm-hmm. It's probably not something you're going to be willing to suffer for. When we, when we meet somebody, when we talk about, if, if, so people say, if, if there's somebody that works for me and they don't have hunger, what should we do? Well, the first thing you want to do is look at, do they have a, an innate desire to do the job? The second thing is you want to ask them if they care about their coworkers. Okay. Mm, mm. And, and whether they want to let them, and if, if they, if they're like, no, I really don't care about my customers, my coworkers or the job itself. I think you owe it to them to have them move on to something else to do mm, mm. because not everybody has the capacity to be part, to be hungry for everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, certainly in my career, I've gotten much hungrier the more I've done what I think God put me here to do. Mm. It's tough for me to be hungry about certain jobs that I thought weren't really Aligned with my gifts, I have. We we had to make we had to recently make a painful painful decision to let go of someone in our in our office, and you know she basically she had been with us for eleven years, and when we let her go, she said that the job was beneath her. Ah, oh, I wish she'd have, if if she found that out in year seven, I wish she'd have said something. There. <laughs> You know, and uh, and and I'm so glad you wrote that book because it just really informs our ability to make decisions in the future. Yeah. Um, so I know we're we're bumping up on on time here, and I have just a few more questions that I ask of everybody, but i i want to I want to make sure that we give you an opportunity to point people in a place where they can connect with you and um, and learn about what you're doing. I know you have a couple of events coming up. Yeah, we, you know, we've never had public events before. We just usually speak when companies call us in or organizations. And so we decided to do one um, here locally in the, in the Bay Area, which is a half-day event, um, May 10th this year. We're going to be down at Santa Clara University where my kids go to school and we're doing a lot of work with them. And so we're going to be down there for a half-day going through all of the material around organizational health. It's going to be less than 500 people, so a relatively small audience. We're going to be able to take questions and things like that. So you can go to our website at um, www tablegroup.com, table like in the kitchen table, tablegroup.com and find out about that. And then next year, we haven't publicly announced this yet, but I'll let your listeners know. Next year, we're going to have what we call it the unconference. It's like a user conference and a leadership conference in Texas for two days. And this is going to be more involved where anybody who's passionate about the stuff we do um, can come down there and spend a couple days with us learning all about what we do, whether you want to be a consultant or you are one whether you're a leader who does this kind of work mm. or just want to apply it in your own organization. So that's going to be January 17th and 18th of next year in Dallas. So that's Ooh. a different kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, love that. love that. But mainly go to the website, tablegroup.com. We have tons of free resources there, downloadable articles, essays, videos. Um, we really just want to spread the message that, like my dad, you don't need to uh, be miserable in your job. You don't need to be frustrated. There's things you can do to make your organizations healthy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I know you got to go, but I have three questions I ask of every single guest. Cool. The first is, if you could take any skill set that you currently possess and turn it into a superpower, what would it be? I guess intuition. I think I've got a lot of intuition. And so I, sometimes I, I love to just sit around and people ask me questions like, what should we do? And I'm like, I don't know why, but my gut tells me this. Hmm. And oftentimes it's pretty close. So hmm. Maybe it's intuition. Well, they often say our, our gut is like our second brain. Right. Yeah. And certain personality types are more in touch with their gut. So maybe mm-hmm. it's that one. The next question is, what three lies do we tell ourselves that prevent us from realizing our full potential? Oh, Probably, I, I think it's that I'm a fake or a fraud. 
I know a lot of people who say that, and even me as an author and a consultant that people listen to, sometimes I go, oh, this is, I'm just making this crap up. <laughs> um, one, that I'm unforgivable, that I've done things in my past mm. that nobody would forgive me for if they really understood that. And that people are only nice to us because of what we can do for them. They don't really care. Those would be three that maybe I sometimes struggle. I love it. I love it. This last question comes from a title of a book by a guy named Clay Christensen, and it is, how will you measure your life? It's, it's got to be conforming to the will of God. It's got to be an internal one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and to how many people came to know God directly or indirectly through me. Hmm. Hmm. Um, not Because I'm not a legacy person. Like This is not about me building up my... Only God will know how I measure my life. So whether whether all the things I do are known or unknown, yeah. you know, you see a person with a statue or who's famous, and you think there's probably great saints and people that nobody even knows about, yeah. you know, buried on the beach outside of Normandy or a saint that never achieved any recognition. Mm-hmm. So I'll measure my life but by what God tells me when I die. Hopefully awesome. it's what he says to me. That's powerful. Well, Patrick Lencioni, thank you so much for joining us on the Impact Entrepreneur Show. This was a great conversation. I learned a lot. I know my audience will as well. All right, Mike, thanks for having me. God bless you and all of them too. This week's review comes from my dear friend, Gonzalo. This show gets me energized to keep moving forward, looking for the best version of myself. Highly recommended. I was really surprised by the secret guest on episode 100. Loved it. So glad that you loved that conversation, Gonzalo, that Lisa and I shared with you. And I hope you listeners go back and listen to that episode 100 because it is a very special and something that I will always hold near and dear to my heart. And you may be seeing more of those kinds of conversations in the future as a little hint. I'd love it if you would head over to iTunes and leave a review yourself. You can go visit the iTunes podcast app, the Apple podcast app, or you can do it on your desktop. Just write a quick review and rate the show, letting me know your honest opinion about the value or the lack of value that we provide, because we always want that kind of feedback to make the show better and better. Thank you to this week's guest and thank you for listening. If you missed any of the key points and highlights from my conversation, we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash podcast for show notes to each and every episode. And while you are there, check out Flynn Wealth Strategies and Insurance Solutions. You can do that by visiting flynnwealthstrategies.com. The Lot Marketing Group and the Podcast Masters, we could not do this show without them and with all of their support. Now, until next time, go make an impact. Impact.